welcome to Euromoney at COP27. My name is Marianne Groh, sustainable finance reporter at Euromoney magazine and your host for this podcast. Over the next two weeks, I'll be sharing the latest news and views from the UN Climate Change Conference in Sharm el-Sheikh. It's November, which in the climate finance agenda means it's once again time for politicians, delegates, investors, NGOs, and journalists to head for the annual UN Climate Change Conference. The event is held at the Egyptian coastal town of Sharm el-Sheikh, making it the first Africa COP since the 2016 edition in Marrakesh. Many view this as an opportunity for the conversation to focus on the sustainability priorities of emerging markets, including climate adaptation strategies, food security, and reparations. But the global energy crisis and supply chain disruptions and rising interest rates have made the investment outlook more uncertain for stakeholders. By the time this episode airs, the conference will be well underway. But today, I'm in London, and I'm meeting with Bank of America's Managing Director for ESG, Abid Karmali, to discuss some of the key themes and expectations ahead of the event. Abid has been working in climate finance for nearly 30 years and has attended almost every single COP. It's funny how things evolve. Are you looking forward to the event? It's only a few days now. Yeah, I mean, there's always this, you know, adrenaline... Uh, rush just because there's so many activities you know you've got kind of you have to focus on the government negotiations you have to focus on you know the corporate side of things what are the companies doing what are the investors doing and then of course you know there's other stakeholders too so what's top of mind for NGOs Um, and then you have to think about you know what the likely outcomes will be how does it move the agenda forward Mm-hmm. Those kinds of things. I mean, there seems to have been quite a lot of uh, cynicism around this year's event and the way that it's been organized and where it's been organized mm-hmm. and what people expect from it. So how have you found the kind of con- conversations around this event this year? Yeah, I think, you know, every, every COP has challenges. And I think the key thing is to focus on, you know, what are the, what are the most likely outcomes? And, you know, the way to break it down is, you know, in, in the kind of, climate change negotiations over time ever since, well, ever since we had the Kyoto Protocol back in COP3, um, you know, there's really several different work streams that have to be um, progressed simultaneously. Um, You know, so you've got mitigation, adaptation, uh, finance, and then a relatively new one is loss and damage. So far, loss and damage has been essentially a dialogue about you know, in another phrase, you could say it's climate reparations. Yes. And, but it, it's interesting because it has a formal place in the Paris Agreement. Um, and without getting into all the details, you know, essentially it is, it, it is in the form of a dialogue, a sort of network, you know, with the concept being that, um, you know, countries should share, um, you know, lessons learned about uh, how to reduce risk you know, in, in the most vulnerable sectors and, and, and geographies around the world. And that will actually expedite, you know, make more efficient um, the allocation of capital, uh, whether it's from governments or even the private sector, towards those areas that need it most. Now, the, 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 uh, the sort of the um, hot debate in uh, Sharm el-Sheikh will be around whether that dialogue can actually be translated into a financial mechanism. Yes. Because it is usually a debate that's held in the public sector. Exactly. So what is the role of the banking sector in this loss and damage dialogue? Well, so it's a good question. And I think it remains primarily a government-to-government issue. But in a way, 
if it can help flag um, the priority areas for investment flows to be allocated, then you know that I think would be welcomed by the private sector. But at the end of the day, it's I think it's strictly this is you know if it's going to be a mechanism uh, in terms of how the funding is put forward, I think it's going to be governments, and we've, we've seen great leadership actually from Germany and Chile already. They're co-chairing that. Is that a conversation that had started in Glasgow? In COP26, this loss and damage yeah, dialogue. So, yeah, so loss and damage, the, you know, the discussion has been percolating for a while because it's been the one area of the Paris Agreement that, you know, has kept getting kicked into the longer grass, right? It wasn't seen as um, critical to getting the deal done in, in Glasgow. Um, but I think... Now that we see, you know, we've, we've got a COP happening in an African country, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in Egypt, I think the emphasis is going to be more on making sure that we see progress on loss and damage, potentially at the expense of getting progress on some of these other measures, the mitigation work program and the adaptation work program. Before we move on, we go into mm. the COP27 agenda. I'm mm. curious to hear about what you think of COP26 a mm. year later. Because yeah. obviously it was, a, it, was a, it was a COP and a conference for uh, big pledges and mm. big commitments. But then the war in Ukraine started and we're now facing a global energy crisis, a cost of living crisis. And we're also seeing a lot of anti-ESG backlash coming from certain American states. So the world is very different to what it was like in November 2021. So I'm curious to know a year later, what are, you, what are your thoughts on COP26? It's, it's failures perhaps as well as its uh, achievements. Yes, I think overall COP26 was a, a successful package, right? It, it hit all of the notes it wanted to hit in terms of, you know, to use the COP presidency's terminology, um, you know, coal, cars, cash and trees, right? So there were deliverables on each of those. Obviously, um, as, as the you know, COP26 president uh, noted on the very last day, um, you know, he was, he was clearly disappointed that we didn't get to an agreement on phase out of, of coal. Instead, it was phased down. So, you know, you can quibble about things around the edges. But generally speaking, it was the COP where, you know, we needed to get um, a final rule book out of the Paris Agreement, and that was done. The, the biggest difference between COP26 and, and COP27 is that, you know, COP27, for the reasons you mentioned, the, the change in the macroeconomic environment, the focus on energy security, um, it, it's really about closing the implementation gap, recognizing that the macroeconomic environment is actually making it, in some ways, more difficult to deliver. But actually, in other ways, it's, it's slightly easier. And let me, let me dig into that a little bit. So, you know, the war in Ukraine has created all kinds of ripple effects. As you, as you say, there's, you know, energy, there's an energy crisis, there's, there's you know, food security issues, um, inflation and actually, it's forced countries and companies to, to focus on supply chain yes. um, reorganization and, and you know, reshoring and friendshoring and all of that. I would say, um, you know, in terms of the, the shift in focus, you've got uh, a higher interest rate environment. So that's mm -hmm. now that creates a potential inflection point in the finance discussion. You know, we, we've been used to commitments to scale up on renewable energy and you know, it's been relatively easy. Of course, there are barriers, you know, planning permissions and all the usual things. But, you know, 
countries like India have been and, and China, you know, have been massively scaling up the the um, renewables. And of course, we've got great tailwinds coming out of Europe and the US with legislation that makes it easier to do so. But a lot of the new renewable installations have to happen in emerging markets. And with high interest rates, that makes it more challenging for capital coming from outside. So there's a funding issue. We're, it's untested at this point, right? We're, we're only just moving into that type of environment. And it'll be really interesting to see what happens in that market. Um, I think on the, on, the, on the one hand, you've got decreases in costs of those technologies. They continue to go down the cost curve. And that's helpful um, to, uh, you know, to investors who are looking to allocate capital in that space. Uh, again, on, on that side of the balance, you know, that side of the ledger, you've got investors who are still keen on ESG-oriented investments. I mean, our Bank of America research is showing, you know, inflows are still um, going into ESG investments. There's still a hunger from the investor community to look for those opportunities. Um, and so I think the momentum is still there. But, you know, on the other hand, high interest rate environment, um, you know, potentially increase in distressed debt, you know, in those emerging markets, both at the sovereign level, which creates, you know, political risk, country risk, elevated country risk, you know, and then at the kind of, um, you know, uh, you know, in, in terms of asset financing, it makes it more challenging given, um, you know, the, the uh, you know, the increased local rates. You know, as a banking institution, one of the things we have to be nimble about is, you know, this will likely change the types of financing opportunities that emerge. I mean, an interesting example is because of the change in the macroeconomic environment, because there's likely to be an increase in in sovereign debt concerns in some uh, emerging markets, which, you know, is where some of the investment needs to take place to to get the transition um, speeding up. We may see more mechanisms like debt for climate swaps and even... um, you know, uh, debt for nature type swaps, uh, you know, which, which have a, the effect of basically reducing the debt burden in the short term and then having the country allocate some of those savings into vehicles that can accelerate mm-hmm. the transition. Last year, it sounded like um, oil and gas companies weren't, didn't really have a legitimate part in the conversation at COP um, and weren't seen as a natural part of the solutions. But do you think that these geopolitical events and the energy security agenda makes us reconsider our relationship to old fossil fuel energy in comparison to renewable energy? I think the energy transition debate is sometimes framed, um, you know, in very stark terms. And, you know, the reality is that we need to, you know, all companies need to transition obviously taking into account different circumstances, different local circumstances, you know, business footprints, etc. But we, it should be a conversation about, you know, essentially 50 shades of olive, right? Because we need to get everybody from, you know, if you like, black to green. Yeah. But that's going to take, take time. And so, you know, I think we'll see um, constructive di- dialogue taking place over the next two COPs. Obviously, you know, in two COPs time, we'll be sitting in, in the UAE, which has a much stronger focus on on the fossil fuel industry and um, yeah so you know this 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 dialogue is is not going away it just may be pushed into different parts of the cop discussion sometimes you know those discussions are more prominent within the blue zone and then yes. sometimes they take place more on the sidelines and I think we'll see a blend this year 
But Egypt also has a pretty uh, strong energy agenda and is pushing very much the hydrogen conversation. Yeah. So what are your expectations on the energy topic sure. for COP27? Yeah, so, so I think this relates back to one of your earlier questions, which is around um, you know, the, the, the impact of the Ukraine war. So short term, we're seeing you know, in, in some markets around the world an increase in fossil fuel-derived um, energy just because that is what's available now um, and that's where countries feel, you know, more comfortable um, allocating, you know, their, their, um, their, their investment. Over the longer term, if we get elevated prices for oil and gas, um, you know, as some now expect, you know, elevated prices for longer, then it actually brings forward the competitiveness um, of things like green hydrogen and carbon capture use and storage even. So I think uh, the Egypt COP will actually be very helpful in uh, bringing forward some you know, interesting um, announcements around green hydrogen. We may even see nuclear having um, more of a spotlight. You know, in, mm. in previous COPs, it's been... You know, it's been a bit of a shunned technology. Yes. And, you know, that's um, perhaps surprising given, you know, it's very much a part of the overall suite of decarbonization technologies that are out there. I mean, obviously, there are countries that are being more proactive. Canada and the UK are two examples where you see, um, you know, both large scale reactors getting approvals or small modular reactors getting approvals. And in the, in the, in the green bond market, we've actually seen sustainable finance frameworks um, adjusted to incorporate uh, nuclear, both new nuclear as well as refurbishments to mm-hmm. nuclear, and, and investors have, have taken up those um, opportunities. So there's, there's, again, increasing appetite in the investor community too. Does Bank of America have an appetite for nuclear and green hydrogen? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we're, uh, so in fact, we've helped to arrange some of those, you know, green bonds with, um, you know, with companies that have nuclear in their footprints, uh, you know, in their portfolios. And then, and, and certainly for us, it fits within our sustainable financing, you know, the $1.5 trillion commitment we've made by 2030. Um, green hydrogen, absolutely. Um, you know, it's a, it's a critical technology um, speaking of that 1.5 trillion commitment, mm-hmm. I think you were at 250 billion mobilized in 2021. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So how does 22 compare 2022? How does that compare uh, with with last year? Yeah, it's you know it's been a more challenging year in some particular markets. Obviously, the debt capital markets have had challenges because of the, the high volatility. So that's you know reduced some of the issuance um, from corporates. But on the other hand, you know, the loan market has been very active and we, we've seen more um, sustainability-linked financing in the loan market. I'm curious to know what are your expectations for this event and how do they align with Bank of America's ESG priorities or sustainability priorities? Hmm. What are some of the key examples? I think there'll be a few critical ones to look for. One is um, discussion around the $100 billion that governments have committed, you know, on mm-hmm. an annual basis, uh, you know, which in Glasgow was delayed until 2023. So how is progress matching up on that? Um, and the re- one of the reasons we'll look at that is because the capital that governments can deploy is helpful for Bank of America and others in the private finance community um, if it is targeted at de-risking investment opportunities in emerging markets. The second is, you know, in terms of finance specifically, is that the post-2020 
package, or maybe it's the post-2025 package, but yeah. anyway, it's, it's you know, the new commitment. So we'll look at it in terms of what's the quantum of finance that is likely to come, come out of that negotiation, and then how much of it is geared towards um, mitigation versus adaptation. And again, how is that relevant for us? Well, you know, Bank of America, you know, has been investing a lot on the mitigation side, and that's obviously the bulk of what we've been doing under the, the $1.5 trillion commitment. But we're also seeing opportunities on the resilience side. Use of proceeds format type bonds are now being expanded to include um, the climate resilience agenda. And this uh, sustainability bond issuance mm. that includes more climate yep. resilience and adaptation KPIs or use of proceeds, are we seeing that more on the sovereign bond issuance side or do you also expect that trend to uh, take place on the corporate end of things? Yeah, so so far it's been more of a sovereign uh, focus, um, but there's absolutely no reason why companies couldn't allocate some of their use of proceeds to improving climate resilience. Um, because, you know, every year, as you know, we do our um, institutional investor surveys and supply chains, ever since COVID, essentially, supply chains have been one of the top three issues um, that's of, you know, of interest to, to investors. In other words, as part of the bigger ESG agenda that, um, you know, that is, is this great dialogue between companies and investors on, on these topics, um, security of supply chain is, is one of the, you know, one of the yeah. prominent topics. And um, improving climate resilience against um, supply chain shocks, um, you know, could be an area of focus for corporates. One of the other topics I wanted to ask you about as well is Article 6, which was a big focus last year in terms of negotiations for the carbon credit markets. Did Have those negotiations come to an end or are we expected to see more developments this year? Yes. So that actually is, you know, in addition to kind of the, the post-2020 package and the current progress in meeting the $100 billion, I would say that is the third KPI on finance. It's progress on Article 6. And... Um, you know, it, within the COPs, the negotiations never end. So there's always, you know, we've got the rule book, it, uh, you know, in high level terms for Article 6, but a lot of the granular, de- you know, detail is now going to be worked on um, as one of those work streams. So, uh, yes, this COP is really important in advancing the agenda. Um, some of the some of the activities that, uh, you know, that we'll be looking for are, for example, which project methodologies are going to be approved by the Article 6.4 Supervisory Board, because um, that has an impact on how the voluntary market may evolve. Yes. Um, which countries are giving an indicator that they will be uh, users of the Article 6.4 mechanism, and some countries have already be- begun saying, yes, they would like to be you know, active participants in Article 6, and others have taken a different approach, which is to say, you know, hold on, we're going to kind of rein this this activity back, um, figure out how we're going to meet our NDC targets first, and then see whether we'll rely upon essentially carbon trading mechanisms to um, you know to fulfil our uh, our commitments. And are we going to see the introduction of new methodologies and new types of credits, specifically on the biodiversity side of things, but also in terms of blue nature capital? I'm hearing a lot of conversations around those types of themes. Are we expected to see methodologies evolve for carbon credits? There is quite a bit of activity in afforestation, in carbon soil sequestration, in uh, blue carbon, in part recognizing that it has multiple co-benefits. 
And it will be good, I think, if the Article 6.4 mechanism adopts these new methodologies, in part because, you know, if you think back to the, 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 the legacy mechanism, the clean development mechanism under the Kyoto Protocol, we weren't anywhere near that stage. It was all about, you know, mitigation. So I think, you know, this is where Article 6.4 can be pioneering. And can all of that be achieved at COP27 this year? Well, it'll be, you know, it'll be about kind of um, giving signals uh, to the market about which methodologies are likely to be achieved. I, you know, remains to be seen. You know, the, the, so the good news is the supervisory board for the mechanism has been appointed. So there are a set of individuals who are now charged with governing this mechanism. They're all, you know, government representatives in, in, in classic COP fashion, balanced between, you know, OECD countries and emerging markets. Um, but we'll have to see how, how much they can progress on their agenda. Mm. With COP as a concept and as a yearly event, you know, there are mixed feelings about it and its purpose in the climate conversation as we're headed toward the 27th and the 28th issue of this event. So you've been to almost every single one of them. So how has the COP itself changed and evolved in time? And what are its core purposes, do you think? So it creates moments in time, milestones that governments have to deliver against. And increasingly since, in fact, the last time we had a COP in Africa, which was Marrakesh um, in around 2017, I believe, uh, it's created this um, focus from the private sector because the, the Marrakesh COP, the last Marrakesh COP, created this thing called the Marrakesh Partnership, which basically said COPs are not just for governments. It's about what the private sector can deliver and even, you know, subnational governments, so cities and states. And, and, um, and, and this concept of, you know, the high-level champions and, the, you know, the, the Marrakesh partnership for, for global climate action was, was born. And, and, you know, what we've seen then is now companies have to focus on what is it that you're doing, what is it that you're delivering for COP? Whether, whether the company chooses to be at COP or not is a different issue, but it, it creates this milestone in the calendar year where essentially you have to kind of be accountable. It's like, you know, what have you done for me lately? Um, and so I think, you know, that, that's probably, probably the, one of the biggest legacies of, of COPs is that it's, it's, um, it's made the process more inclusive. And, and, you know, the Paris Agreement was uh, successful in part because it was all-inclusive across society. Well, I really hope that this COP can be another milestone for everyone. It is certainly for me because it will be the, the first one that I attend. Abed, thank you so much for taking part in this podcast. And uh, I look forward to seeing what the event holds for everyone.